The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Ely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the uh, Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour lives in Santa Monica, is a uh, freelance writer, and his newest book, uh, I think it's his newest book, Preacher Raises the Dead, is his 12th novel, and we're going to talk about that book and maybe some of his other novels as well with uh, author Gerald Everett Jones, who joins me by phone. Hi, Gerald. Welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, Twelve novels. Um, Are are you able to write full-time then? Yeah, you know, I wrote technical and business books for most of my career, and I had a pretty big-time agent for that. And, um, you know, I'm over here on the left coast, you know, it's Hollywood, and, you know, I had a stack of unsold screenplays on the shelf, and actually a couple of those won awards, but <laughs> they never got made. And, uh, you, you know, know it's, so funny that you, it's funny you say that, Gerald, because I've always joked that everybody in Los Angeles is working on a screenplay. Oh, there's an old joke here, that, and I don't know whether it's true, but they said one of the TV stations put somebody outside a supermarket, and they asked everybody who came out, how's the screenplay going? Everybody <laughs> said, it's almost done. <laughs> so it's like, That's kind of the same days, answer I get one. Screenplay is, is, a, is, a, is I, I wouldn't say an impossibility, but spec screenplays became something of a thing after the last big writer's guild strike, because the working writers went home to their kitchen tables and actually banged out scripts that they weren't supposed to write, you know, under normal contracts. You know, you can't, a producer can't ask somebody to write something for free or on spec. And so here, here were all these high-quality uh, screenplays that cost the producers nothing to look at, and that kind of changed the game for a while. Uh, but then now we've got about a million new books being published every year is there, and we blame some of that on mr bezos and, and the kindle and there's just such a glut of material that um i'm i'm told i mean because i'm not rolling in dough these days because of writing but i am told that it is much more likely that you will sell the movie rights to a book than you will sell that spec screenplay just because of the glut of material so anyhow that's that's that. Well, one uh, one admiring author referred to uh, your book as uh, literature masquerading as a mystery. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, that was my colleague Marvin J. Wolf who wrote the Rabbi Ben mysteries, uh, who which also 
fig- uh, figures a clergyman as the protagonist, the amateur sleuth, as it were. And you know, is I that would a whole it, is that a whole genre, Gerald? I mean, you've got preacher raises the dead and other preacher books uh, um, already penned, and and it's. I've watched a lot of these uh, television mysteries, uh, Father Dowling and Father Brown, and, you know, there are some yeah, others. Yeah. Is, is there a whole genre for that, ministers or men of the cloth? That... Well, amateur sleuth is definitely a genre, uh, you know, um, yeah. Murder, She Wrote, sure. you know, is, is a classic, I suppose. Uh, and, yeah, Father Brown, G.K. Chesterton, and, uh, like I say, Marvin's also... Um, I, I don't know that a genre of ministers uh, necessarily exists as much of a much of a subcategory. And actually, one, I think one of the reasons that Marvin made that comment was that one good well one definition of literary fiction is that it's it doesn't fit into a genre. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's, it's it's everything else which makes it bloody difficult to market because really the only thing that can sell a literary fiction is the author's name as a brand. So, um, you know, hence the long road. But I think one of the things that typifies literary fiction is that the main character is typically not heroic, is deeply flawed. I mean, certainly in any uh, fiction, it's... It's a good idea from the writer's standpoint to make that main character human and, and give them some flaws and idiosyncrasies. But a, a, a major flaw, especially especially if the main character is not necessarily committed to their mission, is is more the stuff of of of, of, of literary fiction. And in, in in Evan Wickless case, that's my main character. He's a Baptist minister who sometimes, maybe often, has serious doubts. And the thing is that people in the community, in the small farm town where he lives, come to him with problems because, frankly, nobody else has any interest in solving them. And he's been, he'd been kind of, I wouldn't say a low life, but something of a dropout when he started out at the beginning of the series. He was, he, he dropped out of grad school. He went to divinity school found out way too much about the history of Christianity to, to be inspired, then said, okay, well, maybe I can find some answers in astrophysics. That went nowhere for him. And after a couple of personal tragedies, he went back to his hometown, and he got occasional gigs as a guest preacher. That, that was second nature for him because he'd been raised at Southern Baptist and you know, knew the Bible. Not, not a big deal, okay? And also, he he makes some money as a skip tracer, you know, bill collector for a local um, car dealer, you know, an investigator, you know, a data driller. Uh, and, and these days, that's pretty much what it takes to be a skip tracer. Is you don't run around; you you just sit your computer, you know, running down identities. So he made his small change that way, and he got dragged. I mean, in the first book in the series, he finds his best friend dead in the middle of a cornfield, and looks like suicide. And might well be suicide. Cops write it off right away as suicide. And he's thinking, even if it is suicide, did someone drive Bob to doing it? Because he just really wasn't that kind of person. And so that, got, that, that gets us off. But 
in this third book in the series, uh, Evan actually has to step into the role of full-time minister because the pastor of his church is a long-time mentor. Uh, Reverend Thurston uh, insists on retiring, and Evan's the guy for the job as far as he's concerned. But the thing is, this happens at the beginning of COVID. And what Evan finds out right away is all the chores, if you will, that it, that attend the job of being a full-time minister. He's got to visit the sick and the dying. He's got to perform marriages. He's got to, he's got to preside over funerals. Well, in this age of everybody's in the hospital, uh, this, get, this gets to be a, 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 not only a difficulty, but he's, he's actually staring at death every day. And um, something of a spoiler, but it only happens in the first few pages, is in this latest book, uh, he, he encounters a, a near-death experience. Is One of his parishioners uh, has a heart attack before he gets to the, to the hospital, and they think she's gone. And a doctor calls the, you know, they, they try to revive her with the paddles. The doctor calls the code, and... Uh, they, they phone down to the morgue to have her picked up. And lo and behold, uh, the minute he gets there, uh, she's waking up chattering like a jaybird. And this is not, this is not an un, I won't say unusual because, it is, yes, of course it is unusual, but it is a much more common occurrence. Yeah, it's not unheard of. Yeah, and there, actually, there's I you know there's a fair amount of research that went into this. We <laughs> had to. Um, it turns out Dr. Bruce Grayson at University of Virginia is a very well respected and foremost investigator in near death experience, and he's actually got a research program going where he documents cases of people who wake up after being declared clinically dead, and one of the things. One of the things that is, I don't know whether you'd call it troubling, but it's concerning, is that medical death is defined as when your heart stops and there's no hope of restarting it, okay? Okay. But any physician knows that the brain doesn't actually become not viable until about seven minutes after that. So seven minutes is a really long time. Now, yeah, especially okay, in maybe, radio. <laughs> so, so what, what's going on during that time? And then now there are people actually who come back after longer than seven minutes because they, they tell in medical school they tell you don't revive anybody after seven minutes because they may be brain impaired even even if you do bring them back. But there are people who have come back and, wow, you know, they're fully lucid. And, and it's interesting because Grayson and his team have established metrics for what percentage of these people report what happened to them as a pleasant experience. What percentage of them say they've lost their fear of death? What percentage of them have encountered relatives on the other side and it's amazing the answers to these questions are really quite amazing 
Now, from a clinical standpoint, there are other folks in the medical community that are saying, well, you know, it really might depend a lot from one person to the other of, you know, the brain runs on oxygen and glucose. That's what the what blood takes up there, okay? So it could be that if there was a fair amount trapped up there of oxygenated blood and a, and a, and a pretty, pretty good dose of sugar, maybe a person could hang, a person's consciousness could hang in there longer. But then what really, really intrigues Evan, and I think it should intrigue everybody, is that medical researchers and indeed neuroscientists, let's call them, are doing a lot of serious research about what is consciousness. Because in terms of thinking, in terms of what we would call conscious thought, what's streaming through our minds every second of every day, unless we're asleep, that part is pretty well understood. It's well, the, the famous act. quote, I think, therefore I am. Yeah, Rene Descartes. And that's the interesting thing is, are you the thinker of your thoughts? Are your thoughts you? Is the sum total of your thoughts you? And I think most religious leaders would say no. And many people would say God is the thinker of your thoughts. God, you know, the, uh, the theologist uh, Ernest Holmes said God is all that there is. I mean, right, there was a big bang. Okay, God says, let there be light. Well, if there was nothing and it was only God, then everything <laughs> after the Big Bang is pieces of God. So, and it, it, also in my research, I found there, there, one of these neuroscientists, Christoph Koch, has got a book called The, 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 the Feeling of Being, uh, something like Feeling of Being Alive, I'm not recalling at the moment, but um, The Feeling of Life Itself, that's, that's his book. And he has a very detailed explanation of all these electrochemical activities that go on in the brain. And so he and his research team are trying to get to an explanation of, okay, how we know about thought processes. We know about which parts of the brain take care of vision. We know which, which memory. We know which, which unconscious parts take care of your heartbeat, digestion. But we don't really understand how consciousness arises. And some of the computer scientists say, oh, well, you know, if we can program a robot to think about itself, then, you know, eventually we're going to get to a, to a machine that's complex enough to be aware. Uh, Koch and his research team think not. They think consciousness is kind of something else. And they are actually saying that consciousness, the, the, the best, at this point, all they have is guesses when they get down to that level. His conclusion at the end of his book, wait for this, consciousness is just the fundamental property of the universe. And living things participated in it to the extent that they can. You know, dogs got about Gerald, a two-year-old brain. Spider might have, you know. Gerald, I have to uh, put a comma here because I have to take a short break, but I want to talk some more. Um, can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk oh, some absolutely. more? absolutely. All right. My guest is uh, Gerald Everett Jones. He is the author of a uh, uh, mystery novel called uh, Preacher Raises the Dead. And we're going to find out more about how neuroscience makes its way into a mystery with Gerald when we return. If you're uh, uh, listening to us on 92.1, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hornets. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection.
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with the author of a uh, new novel called Preacher Raises the Dead. And uh, it's his 12th novel, and probably not the first, that delves into some thorny issues like near-death experiences and uh, uh, and, and others. Um, his name is... Uh, Gerald Everett Jones, and he joins me by phone. Gerald, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Well, thanks, Tom. That was uh, that's really quite entertaining. I'm sitting here in the uh, virtual green room. <laughs> um, we were talking about um, actually consciousness and sentience and uh, uh, other aspects of near-death experiences, which makes an appearance in in your latest book um and you were talking about some of the research that you did on on that subject and that got me thinking and and i'm always fascinated by the creative process what what put a near-death experience on your radar for this story how do you come up with ideas for your stories and and um and then, and then, how do you figure out how to research them? Sorry about that. That was a bigger name on the other line, Tom. Uh oh. <laughs> what they say in Hollywood. Um, well, you know, I when I I told you I was used to write business books and. I used to write to, actually the publishers used to require me to, to write to an outline, and if I departed from the outline, I had to, you know, pray to the editor that, you know, why I wanted to change it. But ever since I started writing fiction, you know, and like, this is my, my 12th novel, I really got to the point where I decided that I, I'm sorry, I think it's actually one of those robocalls we were talking about on the... <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I got to the point where I said, you know, it's a whole lot more fun for me if I just let my subconscious go free. I mean, if I can surprise myself on every page, wouldn't I surprise the reader? Wouldn't wouldn't the plot not be predictable? (laughs) And that's actually what has happened. And when I began Preacher Raises the Dead, the third in this series, uh, I had the title, uh, Preacher Raises the Dead. The, the, uh, every title I had something that was kind of miraculous. You know, Pre- Preacher Finds a Corpse is the first one. That's his best friend's body. Uh, Preacher Fakes a Miracle. That had to do with uh, kind of uh, having somebody fake an epileptic fit because people around town thought they were possessed by demons. That, that that was some interesting research. So, but when I started this one, I knew I wanted to treat near-death experience. I knew I wanted to treat coma and recovery from coma, and how that spills over into concepts of the afterlife. Because frankly, you know, we've got this minister with an inquiring mind. But then I also found that there's practical aspects to this is the law, and it turns out that what you'd call right to die laws vary from one state to the other. And, you know, it turned out Southern Missouri, where I'm, I'm from originally, uh, and where this is set, there is no 
right to die as such. I mean, certainly there's no euthanasia. Uh, you, you can't have assisted suicide. But there's actually two elements to If you've got somebody in coma, and that's all, that also occurs in this book, if you've got somebody in coma, there's really two elements to what you, what you call pulling the plug. Is you've got uh, a, a respirator, if you can't breathe on your own, and you've got a feeding tube. Well, the according to the Missouri law, the respirator can be removed because, and then if you can't breathe on your own, you expire. But if you if the respirator is removed and your brain stem's still functioning, you're still breathing. The law says your feeding tube cannot be removed without your permission. Well, if you're in a coma, you ain't gonna be able to give anybody permission. So this, all this movement toward advanced directives is to empower your next of kin to be able to say, yes, the doctors have told us, you know, she could go on for a year and, 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 and never wake up, um, you know, let, let's remove the feeding tube and, and, and see whether... Some would say, you know, God takes her. And actually, some of these laws, and, and, you know, without an advanced directive, a doctor can't do that. Some of these laws seem to be inspired by religious beliefs that only God can take a life, that only that God decides when you go. And it turns out that's not only true of event evangelicals that's also true of orthodox jews and some other some other practicing religions now there are uh let's call it um new thought or new age practitioners who say no the soul decides when to go when your when your mission on earth is done well you know <laughs> nobody knows and yet we've got to write laws uh certainly the law is there to prevent um you know, your greedy heirs from getting at your estate before your time, uh, you know, you could see why uh, you would want to prevent something like that. Um, but but these are all places where the, uh, my mind just, you know, <laughs> the curious mind. So, like Evan, you know, my, like my main character, I mean, one of the reasons he's an investigator is he just can't turn his mind off. And, um, I, you know, I don't, you know, in... Um, in John Le Carre's uh, series, uh, George Smiley, uh, they're, they're spy thrillers, mysteries. Um, George Smiley, the old spy, he can tell you the number of every license plate uh, on it that he sees on his walk home. I mean, it's just he's been trained to absorb data, and he doesn't really know what it's going to mean. Uh, he's, what, he's what they call a close observer. He doesn't know what it's going to mean until a whole lot later in the plot. Is and there th is there a yeah. connection in in your in the preacher books um Gerald between um the the between Evans um search for greater spirituality and the search for answers to other questions the mystery itself well, yes, I mean, that's part of this whole, especially in this third book, where he's actually got to be something of a leader of the community, and he doesn't really feel as though he was cut out to be that, but he's, especially during this uh, 
pandemic period, you know, you've got, you know, they have to suspend services for a while. Right. And yet, um, he, he's really, you know, it's like, okay, well, preacher, do I wear a mask? Uh, do, do I, do I get the vaccine? You know, these are, these are the questions that, um, that, that, that trouble, um, everybody from day to day. And, and there's something of a, of a rebellion within his congregation because because of these previous things that have happened, he's got, there are some people who, you know, all this gossip going around town is, well, this guy's a faith healer. Well, actually not true, but, but he's got he's to somehow step up to that because the people who think that's a good thing want his advice. The people who don't want him run out of town on a, on a rail. So, uh, it, it, yeah, it, it gets kind of complex. And, and, you know, and then, of course, he's got a nemesis. He's got this guy who is an investment banker, uh, Stuart Shackleton, who's a um, uh, hedge fund investor, real estate developer, land grabber. You know, so here, here's his nemesis. But, but this guy, you know, also there are times when it seems like He's he's not such a bad guy. I mean, he he you know, he, he wants what everybody else wants. He he wants a a, a community with a, a good solid families, moral values. Um, uh, but you know, of course, he wants to put a you know shopping center in every street corner. I mean, of course, in the middle of, of Southern Missouri these days, it's like okay, well, can't really grow co- grow corn anymore, and uh, maybe soybeans. But you know, the the model there. Uh, the model for success is like Branson, you know, country music and casinos, and uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, you've got tr- you got Truman Lake and Lake of the Ozark there, uh, back to back. They they look from the air, they look like they they call them the double dragons because they've got so many inlets. There's like spikes on them. So um, the second book is set very much around a, a fictional casino on on Truman Lake. And do you think you know, that pe- the preacher raises the dead? Uh, fits into the the genre of uh, Christian fiction? You know, that's a really good question. And it's, I certainly didn't set it out to be that. I mean, certainly you mentioned the Father Brown mysteries. I don't think you have to be a Catholic to appreciate Father Brown, and I don't think you have to be a, a, a Jewish to appreciate, you know, the Rabbi Ben mysteries. But it does... It does if you if you are a member of that faith, I think it does help you participate in some of their deeper questions, and that would be true here. But see, the genre of Christian fiction, as I understand it, and I can't say that I'm really deep in it, but I mean, there's of course there's apocalyptic Christian fiction. Everybody's concerned with you know the second coming and the the apocalypse, and and you know there, there's the whole Left Behind series of you know, the people who are around after everybody's been born up. Uh, but then also, I think I would think, and this is an assumption on my part, but I would think that Christian fiction often is supposed to be inspirational. It's supposed to have more answers than questions. Well, the opposite <laughs> is true. The opposite does, is true with, how, with Evan. He, he's got many more questions than answers. How does Evan Wycliffe get dragged into these uh, mysteries? I know, like like with Sherlock Holmes, it's always Inspector Lestrade coming to him, <laughs> or he gets a client um, in... Uh, uh, murder she wrote as you mentioned in the in the previous segment um, Jessica Fletcher for some reason 
has a, an old dear friend who has been accused of murder. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and, you know, in, in the mystery genre, I mean, going way back, you know, uh, Raymond Chandler, whatever, it's the it's the damsel in distress. There, there is, there is something wrong uh, in the state of Denmark. You know, there's there's some situation that re- really requires resolution, and especially in a in a rural community, you know, you've got the sheriff who's, you know, this is the county sheriff who's way overworked and understaffed, and you know, you've got people in trailers you know, cooking meth and, you know, you've got, you've, you've got, especially uh, in, in the current environment, you've got with um, uh, economic recession, if you will, you know, you've got, you've got theft um, on the rise just simply because, um, you know, some people, that's the only way they can find to eat. Then also as a minister here, if he's stepping into the full-time role, I mean, there are people just coming to you with their problems. And, you know, it could be in these, in these medical situations of, you know, uh, they've got, you know, grannies in a coma and, you know, they want us to pull the plug. What should we do, preacher? What should we do, pastor? So there's those kinds of, that kind of engine uh, going on with him. And as I say, his talents were uh, a curious mind, and, uh, and and something of a background in both theology and science, but also uh, talents as a data driller. I mean, you know, this this is very <laughs> this is very up to the minute. You know, you, you know, if you if you want to find somebody's identity, you have to type their name in. You know, you're going to get you know you're going to get a dozen uh, sites, including robocalls, that are going to advise you uh, how to how to how to pay <laughs> to get their personal information. And then, you know, now we've got Ancestry.com. You know, you want to drill into your past. <laughs> Well, you know, not as not as hard as it used to be. For you, Gerald, how did uh, Evan Wycliffe, uh, a Baptist minister, get cast as detective? Why not a tech writer or uh, <laughs> you know a rocket scientist? Well, you know that does come out of the genre, but in terms of the two things that preoccupy him, I mean, you know, I I was a student minister back when I was a teenager in Southern Baptist Church for a while, not for very long. But then, like Evan, I went to college and I learned way too much about theology and philosophy and, and you know, <laughs> um, all the things that the, probably the middle medieval church didn't want you to know. You ended up with more questions than answers. Exactly. And I did, <laughs> I did study I astronomy. I, I, ne- I never got deep into astrophysics, although I have read quite a bit of it, uh, you know, in, in later life, because I did a fair number of science textbooks uh, for a living. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the mystery genre pretty much requires that protagonist to be an investigator, and if you're going to create a character who is not a professional from law enforcement, which would throw you into the genre of what they call a police procedural, uh, and then you've got to really know a lot about how official investigations actually go and how forensics work. But, you know, the genre of amateur sleuth is a lot more, is a lot less defined because there's really no rules. You know, you're just somebody who has no business poking into a crime. (laughs) 
And, you know, it, it's a lot easier for me to wear that hat because, you know, I'm not an expert on, you know, crime investigation either. But I, I do tend to be curious about some things. Is, is the local sheriff always a little annoyed with Evan for uh, <laughs> his, well, his observations, know, his interventions? Well, that's, I, you know, it's interesting because his, his, Evan's two best friends in town are the sheriff and the, the retired preacher, the retired pastor, um, uh, Otis, uh, uh, Chet Otis is the uh, sheriff, and um, Marcus Thurston is the, uh, is the pastor, and they're both they're both black men. They're both African Americans, and they're both respected members of that community. But you know, you're talking about you're talking about a extremely conservative, reactionary small town where, again, there's people who still believe in fortune tellers and casting out demons and you know this kind of stuff. I mean, I I have, like I said, uh, my my family's from that part of the world, so I, it's been a while since I've been back. But um, that's that's part of it. Is uh, but I would say that the sheriff, not to give away too much about the series, but the sheriff, the sheriff is very sympathetic with Evan because the sheriff knows that Evan's digging into stuff that really deserves to be looked into. But as sheriff. He really just doesn't have time to chase down rumors. He certainly doesn't work on speculation. You've got to bring him hard evidence, and that's his – if he wants to keep his job, you know, he's got right. to manage his resources. And then, you know, Reverend Thurston, you know, again, it's interesting because the Southern Baptist Convention is, unlike other uh, – some other Protestant uh, denominations, the ordination process – is much less well-defined among Baptists, actually, and that, I had to investigate this because I did want Evan to step into the role of uh, pastor. But in the Southern Baptist denomination, it's pretty much up to the board of deacons of the local church as to whether you, you can be ordained. In other words, if, if, if you were an expert pots and pans salesman who might <laughs> increase the, the quota of souls saved every month, um, you know, they they might actually nominate, and you know, I've certainly actually met revival ministers like that who, um, you know, they they really know how to close a sale. <laughs> and and yet, you know, if we have uh, Evan going to Harvard Divinity, and that that's actually unit, more or less Unitarian uh, uh, curriculum, and it's actually it takes you as long to get ordained in in that tradition is as to become a medical doctor i mean you know you gotta you gotta do college in four years then you gotta do post-grad then you gotta it, it be like an intern you gotta be an assistant minister you know and, and 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 even that even being an assistant minister you really need to be officially sanctioned to do that and uh, but again not necessarily in the uh in other protestant denominations you know it, it um, I, I just saw a movie uh, about um, ministry in Africa. Actually, I lived in Africa for a couple of years in, in Kenya, and I was—I I just assumed that the people in that country would be either Anglican or Catholic because of the colonial tradition. If the one, sure. it is a pre predominantly Christian country, but no, most of the of the um, 
of the Christians in Kenya, which I think is 80% of the population, are, you'd call them Pentecostals. You know, there's, there's, there's still a, a lot of, you know, missionaries from South Central and Los Angeles and running around, you know, converting, uh, uh, you know, uh, tabernacles full of thousands of people. Uh, and it's kind of amazing. And it's interesting because when I lived there, uh, I, I was really treated like royalty, which is another whole other story. But um, there was not a single Kenyan who ever came up to me and said, do you know Jesus? But there were quite a few whose personal examples really moved me. Gerald, uh, let me ask you this real quickly before we run out of time. Um, this is your 12th novel, but the third in the Preacher series. Um, what's, what's up next for you, and does it include Evan? Is, is there more to this series, or is it uh, a trilogy? Well, it it could stand as a trilogy, and I think uh, you, you know. Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> this book, <laughs> fair ends, enough. This, this book has got a satisfying ending, I think. At least my beta readers have told me so, and it does live. But it does leave some very interesting loose ends, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, I get some fan mail that says, you know, what happens next. But the next one that I'm writing, actually, I'm part of the way through. I'm calling Jonathan's Journal, which is a literary fiction is about a, a a guy who's isolated himself during COVID. He's got no living relatives, and he's got this old handwritten journal from World War One that his mother found in an antique shop. And it turns out the journal was written by a soldier in the British Army. And the guy just, you know, drills into this guy's life story and starts trying to read between the lines. And, of course, his... His reading between the lines says more about his personality, says more about the flaws in his character than about the guy who's writing the book. So we're calling Jonathan's Journal. Well, Gerald, I, I can't believe how fast our time has gone, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Uh, Gerald, do you have a website? Yes, GeraldEverettJones.com. That's Everett with two T's. And I use my middle name because there are just a few other Gerald Joneses in the world, and some of them are writers. But if you go there, uh, there's a way to get, uh, you know, on the landing page, there's a way to get a free copy of a book, free electronic copy of a book if you join the mailing list. And then also there is a book list page that lists and has links to Amazon for Every, really every book that uh, in my list, every book that I've written. And I, I, I actually have, I've got a couple of nonfiction books as well. I uh, wrote, wrote about the uh, ancient philosopher Hypatia. I got a, a book on that. I've got my dad, my dad wrote a book um, on uh, actually scholarship of the book of Jonah. And uh, I've got that there. Well, I, again, I, I, I'm always amazed at how fast the time goes. And Gerald, thank you so much for spending uh, some of yours with me and the listeners. You made it such a pleasure, and thanks for letting me bend your ears. <laughs> All right. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. That was uh, Gerald Everett Jones, author of uh, Preacher Raises the Dead, the third in a series and his 12th novel. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. 
Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMagno. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Wisecarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan with Flood Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to Tom at TomSumnerProgram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work, and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Ellen Sherman, Cleveland housewife and mother. Hi, I'm a nuclear physicist and commissioner of consumer affairs. In my spare time, I do needlepoint, read, sculpt, take writing lessons, and brush up on my knowledge of current events. Thursday's my day at the daycare center, and then there's my work with the deaf. But I still have time left over to do all my own baking and practice my backhand, even though I'm on call 24 hours a day as a legal agent. How does Ellen Sherman do it all? Right now, She's smart. She takes speed. 
the tiny blue diet pill you don't have to be overweight to need. And then I collect these paper bags, and I have them right here, all folded and everything. In case anyone needs a paper bag, I have Yes, one. speed. Because I fold them neatly, you know. I don't fold them just any old way. Why I not ask your family doctor for a prescription and today? And when that runs out, you can ask your neighbor's doctor and your mother's doctor and your college roommate's doctor and your best friend from high school's doctor and your babysitter's doctor. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. One by to see my minister yesterday. You know what my minister told me? He was saying how much pressure women are under from the devil and how the devil just hounds women. You know, that's rough too, being a minister. I mean, he told me, he said, you're coming here complaining about your problems, and I got to wage this constant battle against the devil. I said, yeah, Rev. <laughs> he told me his wife came in the house a few days before, and she had this box. And on the side of this box was written the name of a very exclusive dress shop. The lowest dress was $85. And that was on sale. <laughs> so she walks in the house, and Rev says, another dress? You bought another dress? This is ridiculous. That's the third dress this week. And his wife tells him, The devil made me buy this dress. <laughs> Said, I didn't want to buy no dress. The devil kept following me. I was going down the street going, mm-hmm. <laughs> And the devil kept following me, and he kept telling me how good I look. <laughs> Rev said, I'm not going for that. Said, every time you do something wrong, you blame it on the devil. You blamed it on the devil when you ran the car to the side of the church. <laughs> it was the devil. You wasn't there. How do you know? He grabbed the steering wheel out of my hand. Rick said, well, why didn't you step on the brake? Said, because when he grabbed the steering wheel, I tried to kick him. You can't kick him and step on the brake at the same time. Said, and we had a big fight. And that's why I was in the back seat when you all got the call. <laughs> Rev said, well, how'd the devil get you to buy the dress? She said, I was going out of there. And the devil sneaked up behind me. Sneaked. I heard him tip it to you, you know. I didn't want to look around because I knew it was the devil, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the devil came up behind me. He said, he said, uh, say, mama, look at the dress in the window. He <laughs> said, that's your size, too. He said, it's on sale, too. Got a lot of them flowers in it like you like, you know. So why don't you treat yourself to that dress? And I told him, you better cut that out, devil. I already bought two dresses this week. I'm not going to buy no dress. I'm not even going to look at it. Devil said, well, why don't you try it on? He said, I'm not going to charge you charge nothing to try it on. I mean, that's free. You owe yourself a try on. I said, devil, you better leave me alone. And he shoved me in the door. The devil just shoved me in that door. He pushed me in the 
door. I said, devil, stop it, please. Was. I said, cut it out, Debbie. <laughs> then he threatened me and made me try it on. Debbie said, you gonna buy that dress? I said, I'm not buying no dress, Devil. And he pulled a gun. <laughs> Devil pulled a gun and he threatened me and made me sign your name to a check. <laughs> Riff said, look, said, how come every time the devil makes you do something, it's something for your benefit? When's the devil gonna do me a favor? And his wife tells him, he did already. I asked the devil about that. He said, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even have a job. I'll be seated. Everybody say amen. 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 Now, before we start, I got two announcements I want to read off to you. The deacons wish that whoever keeps writing, meet me in the basement on the back of the hymn books would cut it out because everybody that goes down there tracks mud all over the church. <laughs> Amen. And the deacons also wish that whoever keeps putting the frog in the baptismal pool would cut that out because everybody's getting warts from it. <laughs> everybody say amen. 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 Now, preacher went a hunting. It was on a Sunday morning. Now, coach was again his religion, but he took his gun along. He shot himself some very fine quail and one old measly high. And then on his way returning home, he met a great big grizzly bear. Well, that bear marched out in the middle of the road, and he waltzed to the preacher, you see. Well, the preacher, he got so excited, he climbed a persimmon tree. Well, the bear, he sat down upon the ground, and the preacher climbed out on a limb. He cast his eyes to the God in the skies, and these words he says to him. Oh, Lord, didn't you deliver Daniel from the lion's den? Also delivered Jonah from the belly of the whale, and then... The three Hebrew chillin' from the fiery furnace, so the good book do declare. Well, oh, Lord, if you can't have me, for goodness sakes, don't you have that bear? Yeah! Well, that preacher set up in that tree, some say that hit us all night. Along about daybreak, he says, oh, Lord, if you don't have that bear, then you're gonna see one awful fight. Well, just as he said it, the limb let go, and the preacher, he come floating down. Oh, it was a sight to see him just before he hit the ground. He struck old earth a cutting right and left. He did put up a pretty good fight. Before he could do much, that bear grabbed him, squeezed him a little too well, the preacher, he lost his hunting knife, but the bear held on with a vim. So one more time, he cast his eyes to the God in the skies, and these words he says to him. Oh, Lord, didn't you deliver Daniel from the lion's den? Also deliver Jonah from the belly of the whale, and then the three Hebrew chillin' from the fiery furnace, so the good book do declare. Well, oh, Lord, if you can't help me, for goodness sakes, don't you have that this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. See them bloom 
it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. There's uh, Smoke and George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room, but thanks for tuning in and thanks to all my guests. Starting with this last hour, Gerald Everett Jones, author of Preacher Raises the Dead. Before that, we talked with the former Deputy Chief of Staff for uh, Health and Human Services, Paul Mango, about his observations about President Trump versus uh, President Biden with regard to handling the COVID-19 epidemic and we started out this morning talking with uh, Joe Stefani from Desert Cactus about uh, Amazon and technology. The Sumner program is a live variety show. We want to See you tomorrow. Good night everybody. Guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.